The following sermon was preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, June 7, 2020 at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. I just want you to take in a, a deep breath. Just take it in. Good? You hear me? As you do that, I want you to be reminded of something. I want you to be reminded that that breath is a gift of God's grace, freely given to you. Just as you and I can't function physically without the grace of God sustaining our lives, you and I cannot function as a church body without the same grace of God sustaining us. Friends, it's good to know in times like these, it's good to be reminded that God is not in short supply of his grace. You and I are in need, are thirsting for the grace of God's endurance, of encouragement, and of unity. And he, in his grace, he is the one who is the giver of all these things. In fact, Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 15, as he prays for the church, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. Those are things that he freely gives, the grace of encouragement and endurance and unity, so that, Paul prays, here's why, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Enduring, encouraging, and unifying grace for the glory of God. Friends, that's what we need. It's what our hearts most desperately want. And it's of utmost importance to God. In fact, on the eve of his crucifixion, as Jesus would pray and cry out to his Father on our behalf, what was on his heart began to spill out, and he would pray in John chapter 17 and verse 22 that God would make us one just as he and the Father are one so that the world would know that God the Father had sent him and loved them even as he loves his Son. Friends, Jesus staked his reputation on the visible unity of the church. The visible unity of God's people is a primary distinguishing mark of the church. There's to be something about the relationship, something about the church family, something about the church body together, our interactions, our love for one another, our compassion, our joy, our our sharing of sorrows and suffering. There's to be something about us that puts his magnificence on display. Something about our lives, sustained and propelled by the enduring and encouraging and unifying grace of God that is meant in his purposes to create a thirst in the souls of men and women to know just where such gracious living comes from. But Father, forgive us this morning as the question stands before us, have we as his church settled for something less than what Jesus shed his blood for? And that's the question that stands before us this morning that the church has to grapple with. And, And now, church, this is the time that we have to deal with the question. 
We are living in the midst of days that will be looked back on for generations. Pictures of the streets of Richmond and pictures from the Lee Monument will once again be studied by future generations. And as it stands today on June 7th, the story that they will be reviewing in generations to come is still being written. We don't yet know what change is going to come from this, but we're longing for change. I know this week many of you peacefully gathered with your fellow Richmonders to walk in solidarity for change. Marching and walking for change, for justice, for equality. This, this isn't new to our country. In fact, some of our own members, a generation or two older than most of us, walked similar steps for equality just a few decades ago. But we know, and history will always remind us, that laws don't change hearts. Just laws, and, and we should fight for just laws, But just laws in themselves are insufficient to actually cultivate or create a just culture. We know that what we've witnessed over the last several weeks and the killings of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, these lost lives are just the most recent and to be quite honest, the most recently known tragedies in a shamefully long history between black Americans and those who would view them with suspicion, those who would view them as threats and even want to do harm to them. And we know that while our laws continue to move forward to promote equal freedom across ethnicities, we know the fruit of unjust systems and structures still exist long after laws for equality are advanced. See, for a true and just culture to be cultivated, hearts have to be changed. And what we've witnessed is a reminder of this reality. Despite any laws that have continued to advance, any changes in the law that we will hope for, any movements forward in justice and equality, we we know that the evil of partiality, it starts in the hearts of men and women. And we know that God has not been silent on the evil of partiality. The evil of treating people, individuals, or groups of people as something less than on the basis of an arbitrary standard. It could be the color of their skin, their socioeconomic status, their gender. Showing some undue favoritism towards another person or another group based on these standards. We know that God has not been silent on the evil of partiality. And we know that God didn't go to great pains to post a well-crafted, box-ticking, word-using statement about them. In his great love, he sent his only son to die the death that sinners deserve to die. Though he had no sin of his own, Jesus died the death that we deserve to die in order to adopt to himself a people of every tribe, tongue, nation, every ethnicity and gender, men, women, and children, rich or poor, from every skin color that his infinite creativity sees as beautiful. And he promised to give that people, his church, all of the encouraging and enduring and unifying grace necessary to live in such a way that the world would see his beauty through them and thirst for his grace. That's what he spilled his blood for. And so we have to ask ourselves this morning, have we settled for something less than that? 
our world, it, it runs on the engine of partiality. It chews people up, it spits them out. And it's into this broken world that God has sent his people as salt. His people whose lives are meant to push back against the decay and the toxicity, whose lives are meant to enhance the flavor of joy in the community that they're in, whose lives together are meant to create a thirst for his grace in those who don't yet know him. Friends, this is part of the prophetic calling, the vision that God has for his people. It's the very thing that Jesus speaks to his people in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. And I'll just be honest with you, I'm incredibly awed at God's providence. Long before the unrest of the last couple of weeks occurred, we, we had already decided to start a series this week on the parables and the, the parabolic sayings of Jesus, of which this verse is the very first one. And after talking with the elders for many hours this week, as late as even Friday, it seemed wise to us that this was still the very thing that we needed to be reminded of. So as we open up God's word again this morning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, I want you to see the context again of the statement and the calling and the vision that Jesus gives his people. When Jesus tells his people that we are the salt of the earth, this is part of what you may be familiar with as the Sermon on the Mount. Al Mohler, in writing on the Sermon on the Mount, said, The Sermon on the Mount is Christ's call to a Christian counter-revolution. No force on earth can match the influence of Christian disciples bearing witness to salvation in Jesus and exhibiting, putting on display, lives which befit citizens of his kingdom. Now, the parables and the sayings that Jesus is going to make throughout his ministry that we're going to look at in the coming weeks are are all just amplifications of these lives that put on display what it is to be citizens of his kingdom. And so, as he begins this sermon, right on the heels of the preamble of the sermon, his intro, his, his intro was shorter than most of mine, but it was probably more impactful. Right on the heels of his intro, which we know as the Beatitudes, Jesus issues this prophetic call and With this prophetic call, he also gives his church a very prophetic and timely warning. In the midst of a culture then that we're removed from by time, but we still live in a similar spirit, trading on the evils of partiality, Jesus issues this prophetic call, and he does it with a parabolic saying, you are the salt of the earth. That's the calling. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. That's the warning. Church family, we need to be reminded of both this morning. The calling and the warning. Now in Jesus' day, salt carried a, a different value, so to speak, than it does today. It was a highly valued commodity in Jesus' day. In fact, in some areas, even amongst the Roman culture, salt was often used as a currency. And it was prized by everyone for its multifaceted capabilities. In fact, if you grew up in the church at all, if you've been in the church for any period of time, you've probably read or heard someone like me speak or teach on this very verse and try to tease out the multifaceted implications of salt and try to draw all those associations with our lives. And I'm not going to do all of that this morning. I'm just going to mention a few. 
a few of the multifaceted implications that people would have immediately associated with salt in understanding what Jesus is saying, a few that are still very relevant and applicable for our life today. Salt has this amazing capacity, it always has and it still does, to protect a substance from decay, to enhance the inherent flavor of what it's put on, and to produce thirst. But here's the thing. For salt to hold off the process of decay. Even at times in Jesus' day, it was used medicinally to hold off the infection from a wound. Imagine salt being just rubbed into an open wound. It would hold off the, the onset of infection. For it to hold off the process of decay on food or on the infection on the body. For it to enhance the inherent flavor in a dish. For it to do its work of creating a thirst, it actually has to be applied. Salt actually has to come into contact with the substance it's meant to preserve, it's meant to enhance. In fact, as Jesus spoke these words out to his disciples, he was saying that his people were meant to be God's first responders to a hurting world. I love the way that Scott Sauls and I have leaned on his wisdom through the last few weeks. Scott Sauls, he, he said that salty disciples are those that go on the offense, not against the people, but against the toxicity that hurts them. For the church in Jesus' day to be salty, for the early church that took the the glory and the grace of the gospel to heart, whose lives were changed, living in the midst of an evil Roman empire, for the early church to, to be salty people meant to love Rome and the places where God had put them better than those places loved themselves. Friends, that's how the church, the early church, had a greater impact than all of Caesar's power. In fact, if you go back and look at history and look at church history through even the plagues, it was the Romans who tossed their sick family out on the streets to die. And it was the Christians who would go to the places where they would leave their family to die who would take those sick people into their own homes and demonstrate the kind of compassion to them we've been talking about for the last few weeks. It wasn't just even in the issues of plagues and sickness and in the greater issues of partiality. In the days of the early church, girls were discarded. They were seen as less than. Women were objectified and used and then put away. But it was the church. They were the ones who went out to the places in the cities where families would leave their baby girls to die. It was the church who would go out to those places and bring those girls home and love them into life. It was the church who would go to the widows of the Roman culture who had no husband, who had no children anymore, who had no means to support themselves. The only means they would have would be to sell themselves. It was the church that would go out to these widows and say, we'll be your family. It was the church who would treat them as highly esteemed. It was the salty church in the early days that demonstrated to a world driven and defined by partiality that the love of God was the starting point. It wasn't an end or a goal to be achieved. It was these same salty lives 
pushing back against the decay and the toxicity of their day that also flavored and enhanced the environment that they entered. Again, Pastor Scott Sauls, he's been writing about this kind of church for years, long before the, the weeks that we have been seeing. And in one of his books, he, he issued a series of helpful questions with the, the eye towards thinking about what it looks like for the presence of God's people in a place to be an enhancing agent. And I want to share some of them with you this morning because I think they're helpful for where we are. He said, what if in the spirit of how care was given to vulnerable children and women in the early church, women experiencing the trauma and fear of an unplanned pregnancy began to think first of local churches, not local clinics, as comprehensively life-giving places of comfort, counsel, and care? What if in the spirit of Scripture's vision for marriage and sexuality, instead of condemning the world for its broken sexuality, Christians exemplified the beauty of biblical marriage by having biblical marriages. The countercultural kind in which mutual love, respect, and submission is tenderly shared between husbands and wives. What if, as an answer to the loneliness felt by uncoupled men and women, both inside and outside the church, Christians became known for nurturing communities in which every person was given the full experience of family? What if, in the spirit of scripture's vision for the integration of faith and work christians became known as the bosses everyone wanted to work for the colleagues that everyone wanted to work alongside of and the employees that everyone wanted to hire what if in the spirit of scripture's vision for doing justly and loving mercy Christians became widely known as the world's first and most thorough responders whenever a friend or a neighbor or a colleague or a stranger experiences tragedy, such as divorce or unemployment or a crippling diagnosis, a loved one's death, or or even a rebellious child. What if, in the spirit of the Good Samaritan, Christians became widely known as those who rescue from danger, bandage over wounds, and provide care and shelter to those who have been abandoned? beaten and left for dead by the cruelty of human selfishness and greed? What if, in the spirit of Jesus' life and teaching, Christians became widely known not only as the best kinds of friends, but the best kinds of enemies as well, responding to persecution with prayer, to scorn with kindness, to selfishness with generosity, to offense with forgiveness, to hatefulness with grace and love? thinking about the spirit of these questions, we could even add, what if we took seriously the sin of partiality? Living lives of repentance time and again as God mercifully reveals the most inner thoughts of our hearts and the ways we've sinned against him and others as we've minimized the purposes for the blood he shed by favoring one over another. And then Scott said this, what if in the spirit of Jesus... Christians once again became known as those who welcome sinners and eat with them, such that sinners begin to say of Christians, I like them, and I want to be like them. Enhancing the flavor and the joy inherent in the community that God builds and creating a thirst in the souls of men and women to know something of the grace of God they see exhibited in the lives of God's people. That's what it means for the church to be salty. But we have to ask ourselves, do we take Jesus' calling for his church as seriously as he does? 
He laid his life down for it. Do we take it as seriously as he does? Lives live that reflect his love and compassion, his comfort, creating in those, creating in a world around us who don't yet know him, a thirst for the grace and compassion that we've experienced. This calling, this vision, demands that we as God's people stay salty. And therein lies the biggest challenge to the whole thing. One writer said, our generation of Christians is not the first generation to limp along in its calling to live as salt. And praise God even for Peter, as long as it's silly is to say it, praise God for Peter who showed an inherent partiality in his heart when he left table fellowship with one group to be associated with another group and Paul had to call him out. I mean, thank God for the church in Corinth. Just go read those letters. We're not the first to live amongst the world and limp along in our calling. This writer said the people of Jesus have often not represented him well, and our poor representation has created a public relations nightmare for the movement that he began through his death, burial, and resurrection. In the eyes of a watching world, our lives are more lackluster than compelling more contentious than kind, more self-centered than servant-like, more fickle than faithful, more self-centered than generous, more proud than humble. And this is why the, the warning that Jesus gives in Matthew 5, 13, that goes along with the calling, the warning is most often looked over. And go back and, and listen to people teach, go back and read. This thing gets flown right over for the calling to be salt. But this is why the warning that Jesus gives is so important. And you've got to understand the warning that he gives is no less a word of grace than the calling is. It's the kindness of God in Christ to warn us the way he does. If salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled upon under people's feet. Now here's the thing. Salt, as valued as it was for its multifaceted capabilities, salt is a very interesting compound. Today, you and I would never think of salt, sodium chloride, as being able to lose its saltiness. It's one of the most stable compounds we know of. But in Jesus' day in ancient Israel, the way that you got salt was through the process of evaporation. As water would evaporate from the Dead Sea, what would happen is different chlorides would be left and produced. But the first one to form in evaporation was salt. So you could go and collect it. But if you didn't separate the salt from the other chlorides in time, those crystals, those chlorides would attract moisture. And that moisture would cause those elements of sodium and chloride to dissolve. And eventually it would leach out other elements would be attracted to it. Impurity would come and the inherent saltiness would be lost. The ability to preserve, to enhance, to create thirst would be gone. And in that end, it would become useless. It, it would only be good for being thrown under people's feet as grip to be trampled upon. 
Jesus is saying there is a way that something similar can happen to the church. So how can the church begin to lose or leach its saltiness? This is of utmost importance for us as we consider the calling that God has given us. In times like ours in particular, our our saltiness as a people is in jeopardy when, when you and I allow ourselves to become imbalanced in terms of what we allow to shape and influence our hearts. I think it is so easy for us to underemphasize just how shaping and just how influencing the voices we listen to around us are. And there are more voices speaking to us today than there have ever been in the history of the world because of technology. And if we're honest, we can allow our hearts to be discipled more by news feeds and Facebook timelines and talk radio and social media campaigns than we allow our hearts to be discipled by God's word, by prayer, by worship, and by fellowship with his people. I'll just be very honest with you this morning. I fear for my own heart. I fear for my own saltiness when I consider the tidal wave of voices and pressures that exist in the world today. The human soul was not meant to have to wade through this level and this pressure of yelling. Social media in particular and and the invisible ways that we allow social media to devour our saltiness and strength. It was just this week in talking with my wife and, and she was the one that God used to remind me of the story of Hosea, where God's people received a spirit of what's called whoredom, a spirit that allowed their hearts to forsake the satisfaction that was meant to be theirs in God and go and seek the affection and the attention of everyone else in the land. The hollow affection, so to speak. The endless likes and hearts and thumbs up of the world. In Hosea chapter 7, verse 8, God speaks of his people and he says they mix, their, they mix themselves with the people. He's not a cake turned. He's been burnt over, so to speak. Strangers devour his strength and he knows not. Been made strong by the presence and relationship with God. His people have allowed their saltiness, their strength to be devoured by others and they don't even know it. And then the verse that was thunderous this week as we talked about it. Hosea chapter 7 verse 14. The Lord says, they wail upon their beds but they don't cry to me from their heart. God's people make a great show of their emotion. A great show of their wailing a great show for everyone to see. But they don't come to him from their heart. And I fear from my own heart in our age. The loss of saltiness, the temptation to wail from my computer and not cry out to God from my heart. I fear for the pressure and the desire to go after other people's affection and approval while allowing the saltiness that God has given to be devoured. 
I fear for my heart. I fear for our collective heart as God's people and the temptation to exchange a, a salty life for an online persona. It's a whole lot easier to look salty on a computer screen than it is to live this way with others. It's quicker, it's easier, and it's more approved even today. The temptation to go after everyone's affection, to go after everyone's approval, to forsake the saltiness and the relationship and the strength that God has given us for something less, I fear for it. As Ray even prayed, the temptation to practice our righteousness before others. I'm not saying that it's all bad. I'm not saying that all the social media efforts are bad. I'm saying I fear for our heart and why we do what we do and the impact that we allow just the multitude of voices to have in shaping our heart in proportion to the voice of the Lord through his word in prayer and in actual relationship with his people. Friends, we have to be aware of the impact of these things. Salt would lose its saltiness as it took on the denaturing influences of other compounds and allowed itself to be shaped by them, and it couldn't be useful anymore. But I think it's not just that. I I think there's another way that we as God's people stand to, to leech, to lose a bit of our saltiness in the days in which we live. And I think the other way it begins to happen is when you and I become content with a passion or a zeal for information about God with no corresponding passion to be changed by that information anymore. To be content and satisfied to have all the right answers to say all the right things, to write all the right books, to have all the right articles, and yet not have our hearts and our lives changed by those things, to have no level of accountability for transformation at all. You compound that with the presence and the power of technology and social media where we can go online and wail from our beds or wail from our computers and cry out about all the things we believe. But yet if you pulled the covers back on our life, Though we might say all of the right things so that everyone can associate us in the right ways, our life reflects very little of what we're actually saying. So many statements we've made, but yet have you actually picked up the phone to call a friend who's hurting in the midst of it? Friends, you can't argue with this reality being true about God's people. The church has been known for decades about being aggressive, telling the world of the values of things like biblical marriage, yet we have divorce rates that equal the world's. Talking about stewardship of the resources that God has given us, but we're eaten up with consumerism just like everyone else. Lust, pornography, debt. Why would we think it would be any different when it comes to harboring some partiality in our heart? And I'm talking to all of us there, not just one particular group of people. If we say all of the right things, yet we live no differently, what's left in the eyes of the world for us and the culture of the church to be trampled on? I mean, what is it in our lives that we have to say, hey, look, 
This is creating a thirst for the transforming grace of God. Look at the way we steward our resources. Look at the way we love each other in marriage. Look at the way we take care of the bodies God has given us. Look at the ethnic unity amongst God's people. What do we have to actually say, look at this? Friends, and I say this with all love and all concern for my own heart and life, we have earned the right to be dismissed by the culture. We've earned the right to be the butt of all the jokes in TVs and movies. Saltiness has leached because we've settled for having all the right things to say, yet not allowing our hearts to be changed by them. But here's the good news. There is hope. The good news in all of it is that unlike the physical salt that would be collected from the evaporation of the Dead Sea, you and I, as God's people, can indeed have our saltiness restored. In fact, it is God's joy as our gracious Father to restore the hearts of his humble and contrite children. Friends, it's through the grace of repentance that God does the work of salting us again and again giving us new desires, changing the desires of our hearts, exposing the depths of our sin and the magnitude of his grace, depositing his courage and endurance into our hearts that we might live lives that exemplify something of his compassion and comfort that cause a world to say, I'm thirsty for what's made you so different. I mean, let's be honest it was God's plan to purchase for himself a people from every nation. It was his plan for his glory to be seen through the lives of his people. It was his plan for the saltiness of his church to push back the decay of a broken world, to enhance the everyday wherever he sprinkles his people and through their lives to create a thirst for his grace. It was his plan to achieve that at the cost of his own son. So if it's not happening, it's not because God is holding out in some way. It was his plan. If it's not happening, it's probably because you and I have some repenting that we need to do. I mean, who in the church, and I'm speaking to everyone that calls it home, who in the church can honestly say before the Lord that you have never withheld the zealous love for your neighbor, for your brother or sister in the church, that you've never withheld the kind of zealous love that is as consuming as the love that you have for yourself? One pastor asked it this way this week. Who can honestly say that we're not at least partially guilty of withholding the intensity of love that Jesus has commanded his disciples? Withheld love, he said, is sin. And when we see it by the grace of God in our own hearts, you and I have the privilege to run at breakneck speed back to the cross. As we prayed together even this last Wednesday night from 2 Chronicles chapter 7. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Humble themselves. Seek me. Turn from the wickedness exposed in their hearts. I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Just as Raymond said on Friday in the Friday briefing, we don't have all the answers for what all these things look like. But we know where we have to start. 
It's God's people humbling themselves, seeking God's face, crying out from our hearts to him, not just to the world through our phones, crying out to him from our hearts, Lord, help us. Let us not become a people content with wailing from our pillows while neglecting to call out to you from our heart. God, let us cry out to you. Lord, reveal the sin that resides in each of our hearts. Draw us to repentance. Help us to see the withheld love in our own heart. And help us to see by your grace how you withheld nothing for us. Friends, you and I as God's people have the privilege of being able to cry out to God to see the withheld love, to see the deepness and the darkness of our own sin and cry out to him with no fear of condemnation or judgment from our Father. You and I have the freedom by his grace to call out to him and repent day in and day out every day because his forgiveness to us in his Son is more abundant than our sin. Friends, we have the freedom to repent as many times as we sin and to still be salty conduits of grace to one another, reminding each other, as long as it's called today, of the beautiful gospel that God has given to us impartially. No partiality shown. Friends, Jesus said salt is what he made us. You are, he said. Not if you do X, Y, and Z, you might become. He said, no, you are salt. It's part of our identity as his disciples. It's not an achievement that we have to work towards. In fact, Jesus is calling for his church in Matthew chapter 5. It, it's not something that we have to earn. We don't have to work harder for it. We have to do better to become it. No, it's a vision that he's given his people. It's a calling that he created us for. It's an identity that our lives flow out of. It's a life of repentance and faith. It's the prayer of our hearts asking the Lord to restore the saltiness of his people for his glory. Let me bring us towards an end with this. One writer said, you're the only authentic salt this world will ever see. I don't know if you realize that, church. Spiritually speaking, you are the only authentic salt this world will ever taste. The world does not thirst for a religious imitation of itself. Nor does it thirst for an us-against-them moral turf war with zealous religious neighbors. The world thirsts for a different kind of neighbor. Not the kind who deny their fellow man, take up their own comfort, and follow their dreams. But the kind who deny themselves take up their crosses, and follow Jesus in his mission of, a, of loving a weary world to life. The world thirsts for a new vision for what it is to be human, for pursuing and entering real relationships, and for leaving things better than we found them. Church, you're a loved people. So go out and love. Redemption Hill, we're going to pass on more than just a right doctrine to the next generation. We're going to pass on a culture. Will it be one of salty grace?
we are a loved people. So let's go out and love. Let's be salty by the grace of God for the glory of his son. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we live in heavy times right now, but they're not a surprise to you. And so, Lord, it's to you first and foremost that we look, that we turn. Lord, it's to you that our hearts cry out. God, rescue us from the distracting and distorting voices that would seek to devour the strength that you have given us, the saltiness that you have given us. Lord, create first a thirst in our own hearts to hear your voice, to be shaped by your word, to be shaped by your voice, to be guided by your wisdom. And renew in us a saltiness, a desire to be who you have made us to be, to live lives of courageous and grace-driven endurance and encouragement, to exemplify a unity amongst one another that cost your son his life. For the joy that was set before him, he endured what we deserved. Lord, help us to take this calling as seriously as he does. Rescue us from practicing our righteousness before men to to achieve the approval and the affection of, of others. Lord, help us to rest firmly in who you have made us to be. Give us the courage then to live the lives, even in these days when how we live and the rules around what it looks like seem so new. Give us the courage to live the lives you've called us to live. That by your grace, push back against the decay that seeks to devour, that enhances the joy of where you've placed us. That creates a thirst in the souls of men and women to know you. Lord, let this be what we desire for your glory, for our joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement. May he put a spirit of unity in our hearts among ourselves as we follow Jesus. May he restore our saltiness for his glory and our joy. We love you. See you next week. You've been listening to a message given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.